We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Well, hello Key. How are you today? I'm good, V. How are you? How was your Halloween? My Halloween was great. It was so groovy. That's cool. That is cool. I went out to dinner with my dear friend Edwin, and also I promised him that if he moved to the Pacific Northwest and got killed by a serial killer, he gets one episode fully to himself, like no split stories. Okay, question. Pacific Northwest, why so specific? Because, you know, a lot of serial killers have, like, come out of the Pacific Northwest, like Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer. Um, There's like a whole list of serial killers that lived and operated in the Pacific Northwest. Ooh, that's that's very dark. Um, I always wanted to, always wanted to move to um, Washington State, but now, like hearing that, hearing that fun fact, that's not like it's a great idea anymore. Right. So in addition to the two I named, also Robert Lee Yates, Wesley Allen Dodd, and Kenneth Bianchi. So it's like mm. that area of the U.S. just kind of breeds serial killers. So the Serial killer hub of the U.S., if you will. It is. So, you know, you be careful out there. And if anything happens to you, I'll dedicate one whole episode only to you. I've got like four episodes. I'm co-host on this. <laughs> I got to get like tons of episodes. You will be in the show notes of a episode that I do one day. Like, and also V was taken out by serial killer. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. No, you got to be like on this 30 part segment of how we <laughs> lost our greatest V. You know. 30 parts, eh? That's, that's how, how much it's going to take. Definitely, because like you have to go through my lore, like you know, you know my childhood, so you have to go through everything, you know. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess I've. If you move, I'll you know have that on deck. I'll start getting it together. Much appreciated. Now, you know, one state I have never been to is that state called Arkansas. Arkansas. Now, that is a very interesting state. Only because it's in the central region of the U.S. So, you know, you can't say Midwest. You can't say West Coast. You can't say East Coast. You can't say Northern U.S. You can't say Southern U.S. It's just like one of the states in the middle. It, that's true. It's not like really in a specific region. It's very strange. I really like it really makes me wonder how they made these lines because like you know, it just made, I don't know, it makes zero sense when you look at the US on a map. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those gray areas. It's like maybe the only one that it doesn't really fall into a region. It's the twenty fifth state that was admitted to the Union, so that's half of the US. So maybe they did it intentionally, like middle of the country, half of the states will take over, even though I'm sure they didn't know that, you know, but maybe someone did, maybe someone had a vision of 2020, and they saw 50 states on the flag, 50 stars, you know, I'm reaching here. I guess that'll be one of the world's greatest mysteries. Just like why it's spelled like Arkansas, but not pronounced like that. Now, I mean, but technically, that's not a mystery. We know why, but... Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so, I'm taking that this is our next installment of United States of Crime. Yes, it is. This is installment number four. Ooh la la. United States of Crime. Arkansas, here we come. Even though you are a very quiet, central state in our country... You are not one from having murders and foulness take place. 
Definitely not. So would you like to go first? Why, sure, I would like to. Gather around, children. It is time for telecrime. So, Key, uh, neat thing about Arkansas is that their flag, state flag, is red. And the person I'll be talking about today is James Way- James Wayburn Hall, who was known as Red when he was a kid in Big Jim and his adult life. Two very vastly different nicknames. Well, Red was because of his bright red hair, and Big Jim was because of his tall stature when he became an adult. It should have been Big Red. But, you know, maybe his parents would have been sued by a gum company. By mm. by good old Mars chewing gum. Yeah, gotta be wary of these litigious chewing gum companies. <laughs> so, on January 28th, 1921, James Webern Hall was born. As a child, James Hall was known as Red, referring to the color of his bright red hair. James was one of ten children born to strict parents. His father, a farmer and preacher at a church, and his mother, a homemaker. He eventually suffered brain injuries when he was 12 years old, most likely as a result from his father beating him regularly. Ten children is a lot of kids. Like, that is crazy. I I can imagine having nine siblings. Every time somebody has a lot of siblings, it's always like, ooh, that's a lot. And... And, like, at that point, you're bound to have someone be a murderer or something. The odds are not in your favor once you have, like, in the double digits of kids. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because, like, you know, I'm sure all, their, I'm sure all parents want their children to become, you know, greatness. Want them to achieve more and more. But when you have ten kids, how can you split up that precious, precious attention and then... Some things you learn from one one child, you try to do the next child, they don't reciprocate it well because they're not like the other child. So it just seems really hard being a parent in general, but then being a parent to 10 different kids. But big ups to that mom, though, because this was the early 20th century and she had 10 babies. Yeah, well, you know, she is no uh, Duggar family, though. You know, they have like 20 biological children. 20. Wow. Yeah. Well, the Duggars will live on forever, it seems. Because that is a lot. Yeah, so I'm guessing that the odds are not in their favor of everyone being the tip-top of the crop. So only time will tell for that one, right? Right. In 1943, Hall was drafted by the Navy. As World War II efforts began to strengthen, Hall hated being in the military. He did not take authority well, constantly trying to escape his military duties. Good news for him, he was dishonorably discharged after only eight years. Back home in Little Rock, he married 19 year old Farron Clemens on March 14, 1944. But their relationship was rocky from the very start. Only three months married led to separation in June. I think that's kind of why I don't believe in the draft. Like, why would you force people to fight for our country when they don't want to? Like, take the people who volunteer who want to go, not the people who you're forcing to go. And then they're not going to, you know, their heart isn't going to be in it the way like somebody who has just grown up dreaming to be in the Army or Navy or whatever. I'm glad they don't draft anymore. Yeah, 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 like someone who's like fifth generation army, you know, that's part of their passion. But if you just take old Big Jim here and throw him in the Navy, if something pops off and something's going to happen to the guy next to him, he's not going to care. He's going to save his own butt and like, you know, right. like run away. He's going to, you know, commit treason or something if he has to. Right. So I'm glad they stopped that. Well, I'm just glad there's not another world war for us to worry about. Not yet. Uh-oh. She knows something we don't. Well, you know, it's top-secret FBI training information. Mm, it has leaked. You are an old faucet, I'd say. 
<laughs> On September 28th, Hall went to visit his father-in-law, claiming that Farine had deserted him three days earlier. Police were notified, but based on Farine's past behaviors, they closed their investigation after only a week, declaring her a probable runaway. This conclusion was crumbled only two months later when relatives received a Christmas card with Farine's signature on it, postmarked from Bakersfield, California. James borrowed the card and envelope before officers had a chance to examine it, and then all of a sudden, it was lost. Mm-hmm. Lost. Pretty sure we can gather that he forged that card to make it look like that she was still alive. I guess family members were maybe asking questions or something, you know? And so maybe he had to cover his tracks by saying, by sending them the postcard from California. Yeah, that's a that's something you really couldn't do nowadays. But yeah, back then, a good old postcard will quell everyone's suspicions. Yeah, but oh, she's doing fine. She's in... California on Christmas, he's doing fine. Exactly. So, the next year, on January 29th, loggers discovered an abandoned car in Ochita County, southwest of Little There was a dead man slumped behind the wheel. A bullet in his heart, identified from fingerprints as Carl Hamilton, a barber in Camden. Deemed a murder, homicide detectives to connect this with the disappearance of Farine Clements of Little Rock, which is over 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, away. The victim had been dead for several days when found. On February 1st, E.C. Adams vanished on the way to his job at a Little Rock war plant. His car was found outside of Fordyce, northwest of Camden and Dallas County. Searchers located his body in some nearby bush a single bullet in his brain. The same day, trucker Doyle Mahoran was reported long overdue on a scheduled meat delivery. His vehicle was found hours later near Stuttgart, over 40 miles to the southeast of Low Rock. A sweep of the area turned up his body, again a single bullet in his brain, and his pockets were emptied of the $125 in company cash. Now, one hundred twenty-five dollars back in nineteen forty-five was about like seventeen grand. Oh, sorry, was about one thousand seven hundred dollars. I was about to say seventeen grand. I need a time machine. Yeah, that would have been that would be ridiculous. Come March second, police were still cold on the trail of this acclaimed serial killer. The same day, Big Jim was arrested in a Little Rock bar fight. A fine of $160.90 was issued on his plea of guilty to simple assault. So $106.90 is $1,543.29 today. That was a fine for a bar fight. That's pretty crazy. He must have tore some stuff up. Yeah, you know, property damage can get expensive. I really hope he didn't break any pool cues. They never deserve it in movies. They never deserve it. Authorities became more interested in Hall when acquaintance recalled loaning him their car on January 28th. There was a loaded pistol in the glove compartment, and a single bullet was missing from the clip when Hall returned the car on January 29th. Ballistics tests revealed this gun had been the same one to have killed Carl Hamilton. A week later, a car destroyed by fire was found near Herber Springs in Clipburn County. An incinerated body was recovered from the back seat, identified from dental charts as J.D. Newcomb Jr. of Little Rock. Around the same time, a search of Big Jim's living quarters was conducted. This investigation revealed alarming quantities of ammunition and shaving gear were stolen from Hamilton. Picked up near Little Rock on March 15th, Big Jim sang like a canary, confessing to a series of hold-up murders that earned him less than $300 overall. Well, that was sucky. That was a waste of time. It was indeed. But then again, though, $300 back then was about four grand. Still not, still not a crazy amount, but... No, for multiple... 
robberies? Meh. Yeah, murders. I no. guess he did okay. He led detectives to the site where his wife was buried, which, to his surprise, a local farmer had retrieved a skull months earlier. Fermin was ultimately identified from her uniquely crooked teeth. After a two-day trial, James Weyburn Hall was convicted of murder in May 1945, sentenced to death by electrocution. A little over seven months later, Big Jim walked the Green Mile up to the chair on January 4th, 1946. He was smiling from cheek to cheek, laughing and joking with his guards, saying, quote, Boys, I'm not afraid, unquote. And when they strapped him in and fastened the electrodes, his last words were, I can take it. Man, he got executed quickly. It usually takes longer than that? Yeah, like, people be on death row for, like, 30 years now. Dang, that sucks. But fun fact, Arkansas is one in nine states that still to this day have an electric chair that can be used if legal injection is ever deemed unconstitutional. So they have a backup plan. They have a backup plan. Which is kind of crazy because lethal injection... You know, power can't go out for that. But power can go out for electric chair. So I think that's kind of crazy. But it's like a real big issue with the chemicals that they use for lethal injection now. So they're trying to, I I think, get that to not be the first choice anymore. Because they're saying it's not humane because the people suffer. So... I think that's kind of the issue with the lethal injection now. They Whatever drug they used to use to, like, I don't know if it's, like, the one that, like, makes them paralyzed is the one that got switched. And now, like, it doesn't do it all the way. And so they can, like, feel the second one. And so it's, like, a painful situation before they actually die. Ooh. But, I mean, if you're on death row, I don't care. Be in pain. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you murdered an entire family and two babies, you deserve whatever you get. Absolutely. And if that means a painful lethal injection, then so be it. Well, now, my story takes place in a little city called Pocahontas, Arkansas. Oh, wow. Can you see the colors of the wind there? You can. You can paint with all the colors of the wind as well. Oh. So, Travis Perkins lived in Pocahontas, which is a small town along the Black River in northeast Arkansas. He lived in a ramshackle brick building painted white along with steep roof of blue shingles. He lived on the second floor where there were no windows, though, which that seems kind of weird, but okay. He lived alone with his television, his computer, and pictures of kids on his wall. He would have friends over, usually one at a time, and they'd play board games or set up a target on one side of the room and shoot at it with either pellet guns or bows and arrows, which seems quite dangerous. It seems dangerous, but it sounds kind of fun, though. Sounds like a very bro thing to do. It does. Now, Travis and his friends would also smoke meth sometimes, and that would ultimately be the cause of his demise. Smoking meth is not a bro thing to do, audience. It is not. Don't smoke meth. No matter how cool Breaking Bad made it seem. Well, they actually made it seem like it was cool to cook it. Not smoke it, but, you know, either way. So, Pocahontas is at the intersection of the Mississippi Delta and the Ozark Mountains. It's a quiet community, and the town's history contains a legacy of bootleggers and black market opportunists. It's said to have been an early hideout to one-time public enemy number one, Alvin Creepy Carpus, who went on to serve 26 years in Alcatraz. 26 years on that little island? Yes. Jeez. 
Now, more recently, it's been home to a series of figures straight out of outlaw legends, like the corrupt former state senator Nick Wilson, one-time namesake of the local airport, and state trooper Jack McMullen, who smuggled trash bags of weed up from Pasadena, Texas, before the rest of the law enforcement caught up with them. Now, Perkins had come to Pocahontas from Dixon, Missouri in 1992 and graduated from Pocahontas High before studying to become a professional welder. In recent years, he had worked for a company called DACO, building flatbed trailers from scratch, and he was also divorced from his ex-wife, Kimberly. It wasn't the life he had wanted or planned, but things were improving. Around town, despite his drug use, Perkins was generally well-liked and thought of as kind of a sweet guy and a big teddy bear. He was funny, kind, and at worst, kind of naive. He was 34 years old when one night on a Saturday in April 2013, someone said to be wearing a trench coat and a wig broke into his apartment in the middle of the night and shot him twice in his bed, once in the cheek, and once under his chin. His body wasn't discovered until the following week. He was lying on his back with his feet on the floor as though he had intended to stand up. Now, the murder appeared to be related to an FBI-led drug investigation, and Perkins was thought to be collateral damage. For a long time afterward, his death was the subject of a lot of speculation, and countless theories. However, almost everyone agreed that Travis Perkins' fate was finally and irrevocably sealed. One afternoon in 2011, when Glenn Smith, the chief of police in the nearby town of Hoaxie, switched on his lights and pulled over a pickup truck he had seen veering over the center line of traffic on Highway 67. Behind the wheel of this truck, he found 63-year-old Bob Castleman, along with his girlfriend, Becky Spray. They were well known to the area because Castleman was a former municipal judge and an attorney. Now, he and Becky had met when he represented her in a drug case when she was 19. The police ran his license and scanned the messy interior of the truck. Smith asked Castleman if he would submit to a drug test, to which the former judge replied, why in the world would I want to do that? Now, that's sketchy already. You're a former judge and an attorney, and you're like... Mm, no thank you on the drug test like if you're not doing drugs just do the drug test yeah bro you know how this goes already right now in truth Smith had been looking for this particular truck a longtime friend who worked at a farm supply store would often tip him off when he noticed customers purchasing what law enforcement jargon are termed as drug precursors or materials regularly used in the manufacturing of illicit drugs or if they were just otherwise acting suspiciously. In Castleman's truck, Smith found a can of Coleman lantern fuel and a rolled up vinyl tubing, which qualified as precursors when purchased together. On the floorboards in the front of the passenger seat, Smith also noticed a bag of allergy pills containing pseudoephedrine a common chemical precursor for methamphetamine. Now, both Castleman and Spray were promptly arrested and a state judge issued a search warrant for Castleman's property on Fairview Road, just outside of Pocahontas. The farm, which was over 200 acres of mostly dense, desolate woods, had once been a cattle operation, but for several years had only been used for its timber. In the house, police found lithium batteries, another key meth ingredient, which I did not know, digital scales, and about a half ounce of marijuana. The battery thing's pretty interesting. 
It is. It is because I would not think batteries was were needed to cook meth. Mm-hmm. So they immediately put Castleman's son, Jared, and his girlfriend, Fancy, in handcuffs. At the same time, about 200 yards out into the woods in sort of a trough, two other deputies stumbled on what they later described as a meth lab, which consisted of an air tank, a plastic tub, coiled copper line, various lengths of piping and tubing, a hand siphon pump, funnels, and a plastic pitcher containing a pill crusher and residue. Later under questioning, Jared Castleman gave up a few names of locals who he said had cooked, purchased, or smoked meth on the farm. One of the names he gave, a regular, was one of his oldest friends, a then 32-year-old welder named Travis Perkins. Now, long before this drug investigation and the events that followed, Bob Castleman was infamous in Pocahontas for a bizarre incident years earlier involving a copperhead snake. So here's what happened. Jared Castleman has had drug-related issues of his own since he was around 14. Bob and Jared were, as friends put it in court, quote, more like buddies or friends than like a father and son. And Bob had always been intensely, even violently protective of his son. And it directly to one of the strangest and most embarrassing episodes, which um, newspapers would later dub as the snake trial. So in the summer of 2001, Jared was in the middle of a feud with a former friend over the possibly fraudulent sale of a four-wheeler ATV. One night in June, he and his girlfriend drove over to that friend's home and began doing donuts outside in the street and driving ominous circles in the gravel as if to issue a threat. We were so scared, Albert Stanton, the friend's father, said later in court. We didn't know what he was planning to do. So, Stanton retrieved his 9mm handgun and fired seven shots at Jared's 1998 Chevy Blazer, shattering the windshield and barely missing him. And I say, bravo, Mr. Stanton, that's what you do. You stand your ground. You protect yourself. Protect yourself, yeah. Now, Bob, who was called to the scene in the middle of the night, was pissed. And then, after no charges were brought against the Stantons for the incident... Bob became obsessed with revenge. Oh, I wanted to take immediate action, he explained to the court. I think any parent would want to take immediate action. Now, the timeline of what happened is kind of difficult to pinpoint because many of the aspects are disputed by both parties. So the federal court's transcript says that this is how they figured out that it went on or about September 29th, 2002 in the Eastern district of Arkansas, Mr. Castleman aiding and abetting his son, Jared did knowingly deposit or mail at a Pocahontas post office and calls to be delivered by mail, a communication containing a threat to the person of another to wit, a package addressed to Albert Coy Stanton, which contained a live, mature copperhead snake. Now, the snake had been mailed in a cardboard box filled with green packing peanuts, and it was Stanton's wife who actually opened it while she was sitting in the front seat of their car. It popped out facing her, and she threw it out of the vehicle onto the ground, trapping it under the box. Sheriff's deputies rushed to the scene and shot the snake, which was then preserved in in an ethanol jar by a snake pathologist. Now, this jar would later turn up during the trial where it was held up in front of the jurors so they could get a clear look. Snake trial briefly 
captured the imaginations of media all over the country. Quote, lawyer guilty of mailing deadly snake, reported CNN. And this was even cited in law textbooks, a perfect example of so-called unmailable materials. Could you believe doing something that crazy that it gets put into a law book? No, that's legendary. (laughs) That's so crazy. Now, after a misguided attempt by Jared's lawyer to claim that the Stantons had framed them, Bob admitted defeat. Standing on the steps of the courthouse, he told reporters, I'm not going to let a snake ruin my life. Castleman went on to deliver an extended monologue at the sentencing uh, hearing in 2004. Quote, I made a mistake of taking the law into my own hands, he concluded. Judge George Howard Jr. heard his apology and was moved. Once a sinner, not always a sinner, Howard proclaimed. I am a strong believer in that scriptural concept. And sentenced to 27 months in prison. However, the judge said in closing, I'm persuaded that you have seen the light. The judge is going to have egg on his face. Uh Uh-oh. Now, back to 2011 in Pocahontas, where this raid was going on. Now, the first raid on Pocahontas came a month after the meth lab was discovered in Castleman's farm in May 2011. The FBI headed the operation and other departments were also in attendance, but the Pocahontas Police Department was conspicuously absent. It soon emerged that through that the city's police force was kept in the dark because it was among the targets of the investigation. Over the next several hours, officers fanned out across the town with SWAT vehicles battering rams, flash grenades, breaking down doors, and bagging evidence, and also taking in suspects. Now, among those taken in for questioning while their homes and offices were searched were Pocahontas Chief of Police Chad Mulligan and John Throsch, who was a district court judge and prominent attorney. Now, Thrush's law firm had been one of the main focuses of the investigation stemming from Castleman's traffic stop. After being tipped off about possible drug activity on the premises, agents had staked out the building and set up video cameras across the street. And pretty soon, an obvious pattern emerged. On video, they caught two of Thrush's employees leaving cash under a stone in the garden. A third figure would later come and replace the money with drugs. One of the employees was identified as Trish Mulligan, wife of the city's police chief. The third figure they learned was none other than Travis Perkins. Another raid followed in 2012 as the number of suspects said to be associated with the Pocahontas drug ring mounted, and those at the center of the investigation grew increasingly paranoid. Bob Castleman, in a 2012 hearing over whether or not he could dismiss the evidence from the hoaxy traffic stop, claimed to have developed major depressive disorder, as well as persistent back pain, a herniated disc, 13 kidney stones, an enlarged prostate, a staph infection, and a pinched sciatic nerve in his left leg. Okay, geez. Now, I'm not sure how the raids caused all that, and the especially specific 13 kidney stones, but hey, do what you gotta do to get out of jail, I guess. So he said, I need to be back home, he told the court. I'm not bothering anybody. I haven't committed any crimes. I'm not socializing with anyone, and no one is socializing with me. Quote, he's a peaceful gentleman, his first lawyer, a public defendant, told the court. This is not like some other defendants you see in this court. There's no suggestion of violent behavior, no suggestion of anybody being injured, killed, threatened, or any of those things. 
egg is going to be on this lawyer's face. (laughs) Meanwhile, the pressure was also getting to Travis Perkins, who was painted in the government's allegations as the crucial point of connection between the drug scenes manufacturing and distributing crews based on the farm and at the Thrush Law Office, respectively. Those who were actually involved with the scene, however, tend to downplay Perkins' overall importance in the city's drug world, offering that he was never much more than a supplier of precursors to the older, more experienced men who actually cooked the product. Given the charges against him and the amount of information he had on the others, it was perhaps inevitable that Perkins would begin to seem like a liability. Now, after Bob was released on bond, he made frequent phone calls to Jared, who was back in prison. And like all prison conversations, they were recorded. I don't understand why criminals don't understand that. Uh But hey, keep doing dumb stuff so you can stay in jail. That's, That's fine with me. Now, they discuss the case against them in detail with Bob expressing particular concern for his son who had prior drug convictions and so was at the most risk. I'm just hoping they haven't turned Travis, Bob told him. Now, Perkins was scheduled to plead guilty on April 18th, 2013. The federal prosecutors claimed that he had in fact been turned and that he had committed to sign a plea agreement and cooperate with the government's investigation testifying against the Castlemans. On Friday, April 12th, the day before he was killed, Perkins played Mancala at his apartment with an old friend. Have you ever played that before? Yes, my friend Jake is bringing the, the school Sometimes, and we would play before school started. I used to have it, and I used to play it a lot, and I I guess it lost, got lost in the shuffle of all the moving around I used to do. But that was actually a pretty fun game. So, yeah. at this point, Travis had been clean for some months, and whether it was because of the court-mandated drug test or out of a sincere effort to turn things around for himself... You know, he had stayed away from everything. So while they played the game that day, according to the friend, Perkins mostly talked about prison. So it seems like he kind of made peace with the situation. Like he knew he was going to go. He got himself clean. He was going to just go ahead and testify and maybe get a reduced sentence. And, you know, everything would be everything. Yeah, it'll work out. So Perkins' body was discovered by his landlord the following Monday, April 15th, just three days before his court date. The ballistics analysis at Perkins' apartment was useless, investigators claimed, as the bullets were too damaged to be. Also, there were no eyewitnesses or usable physical evidence at the scene. The neighbors hadn't heard anything. And given the timing, the government was fairly confident it had a motive in mind as well as a perpetrator. Now, Jerry had an alibi. Even though he was back home by this point, his every move was monitored by an electronic ankle bracelet. Therefore, Bob Castleman became the government's primary suspect. That Saturday night, that Perkins was killed, Castleman had driven to Southland Park in West Memphis to see the dog races with a woman named Kim Caudle, who was an old girlfriend of his son's, which is weird, but okay. Now, Caudle later testified that she did not see him for a few hours. He placed a call to Jared, according to the phone records, at about 12.14 a.m., 
Then he left his cell phone with Caudle because she was out of minutes. Yes, children, there was a point in time where your cell phone could run out of minutes. Thank goodness we don't live in that time anymore. Yeah, I'm so glad. So the next time she saw him was sometime after 4 a.m. She also testified that she had once overheard Jared discussing Perkins with his father and the younger cattleman, Castleman, was convinced he could change his mind if he could only meet with his old friend. Now, the drive from Southland Park to Pocahontas roughly takes about two hours. So that would be about four round trip. And that would be cutting it pretty, pretty close. If she, if he was there with Caudle at 12, 14, when he made that call, gave her his cell phone, and then she saw him sometime after four. That is a tight turnaround. That is, man. So. Castleman's lawyer said that the evidence is just as thin as can be, but the federal prosecutors thought otherwise. Travis had the most information about Bob, said the um, assistant U.S. attorney Garner. Travis was the one who was out there on the farm doing this when Jarrett was away, doing this meaning cooking the meth. My personal belief is that Bob thought he was helping Jared. His son was in trouble, and he and his son were very close. Now, in the end, Perkins' murder did not solve any of Bob Castleman's problems. His son, Jared, finally agreed to a plea deal in December 2013. Tearfully, he told the court that his father had admitted to the murder to him that he had disguised himself in a trench coat and a wig and had driven to Perkins' apartment in the middle of the night and killed him. He said he tossed the gun over a bridge into the Spring River. Now, Bob did not expect Jarrett to testify. And Jarrett didn't plead guilty until the day of the trial. So I guess he did this as a last-minute thing. Now, oddly enough, the government elected not to charge Castleman with murder. Instead, it simply added on the allegation into the latter stages of his drug trial, which took advantage of the nature of the sentencing guidelines. And according to the sentencing guidelines, a sentence can be enhanced or increased if a homicide is committed in the course of committing a crime. So that was used to make Castleman's drug conviction more severe. He was found guilty, and because of his son's testimony, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison, which was a much greater term than he would have otherwise faced. Now, the remaining defendants, along with prominent bystanders unknowingly entangled in this investigation, all of them are now survivors of the so-called Pocahontas drug ring, and they either left town or are lying low. Now, Mulligan, the former police chief who was cleared of any involvement in the conspiracy, resigned and moved to Florida with his wife, even though his wife was the one who got him tangled up in it in the first place. Throsh, the district court judge, who claimed to have no knowledge of his employees' activities, closed his office, and now works out of his brother's building. The other co-conspirators, most of them being truck drivers or auto mechanics who got in over their heads, are on probation and hoping to stay out of trouble and just move on. So this guy, Castleman, went from an attorney to a judge to a meth dealer. Yeah, that is a very... Quite the fall yeah. from grace. Absolutely. Well, from a meth dealer to a convicted felon. 
so. Well, I guess it's better, better than being dead. Well, he probably wishes he was because he was in his 60s when he went to jail in 40 years. Like, that's the rest of his life. And, you know, America, we, we like to stick to our sentences. It's not, you know, 40 years, but you could be out on good behavior in 20s. Like, no, you're doing that whole 40 years, sir or madam. It's all or nothing with the U.S. Yeah, I guess it's good on one hand and bad on the other hand. Like, if you're not guilty, then, yeah, that, that really sucks. But if you are guilty, then good. You need to stay and do every minute of every day that you're sentenced. I guess it's kind of like a, you know, depending on where you are, like, on guilty or innocent and you're getting convicted. Yeah. Where you are on that little spectrum right there, like, whether it's a good thing or not. But, you know, like a lot of other countries like Canada and Australia, like, you might get a life sentence, but they'll let you go up for parole in, like, 15 years. Like, hmm. No. If you murdered somebody, you don't need a parole. Mm, no. Not even the option of parole. No, you don't need parole. No. So. Well, that right there was a wild ride through Arkansas. Yes, it was. I'm looking at Arkansas a little differently now. Right. Like, it, it's such a a quiet state that, you know, is very, you know, it doesn't have a reputation like a lot of other states. It just kind of sits there and does its thing. But now we know there's like serial killers and meth addicts and all kinds of things going on. All kinds of nonsense. All kinds of nonsense. So how are we going to bring this back up? Well, I found some good Arkansas news. Oh, do tell. So a man at Diamond State Park found a diamond and a crater. Pretty neat, yeah. Pretty cool, right? That is like, was it like a valuable, like a, a big diamond? It looks like people go to Diamond State Park to actually find diamonds. And, um... And he totally did. It looks like it's a four and a half carat diamond. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He, he, he says he's not sure if he's going to keep it or sell it. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on, like, does he have someone to give it to? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, not a lot of guys just want to walk around with a big four carat diamond, like, hanging from their ear or from a necklace or on the ring or whatever. Right. You can go from forty to four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Depending on the clarity, yeah. That is crazy, crazy. And color. You know, the four seeds of diamonds. Clarity, color, cut, and carrot. That's those four things make a good diamond, even though it's literally just a shiny rock. Like it's just a, it's just a, a see through rock. Yeah, like De Beers literally pulled the wool over everybody's eyes on that one. That's so crazy. Yeah, like just forcing people to to believe that these ground rocks are valuable in some way. <laughs> However, good on you De Beers, you pulled one over on everybody. <laughs> and congratulations to that man finding that huge, probably not huge physically, but huge in carrots. Like a four carat diamond is nothing to sneeze at. No, so Stephen McCool, if you hear this, congratulations, my man. Oh, yeah. So, that was great. I, I love that little story. I, I, feel, I feel better about Arkansas, knowing that there's like a, a random diamond mine that people can just go to and possibly find a diamond. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a very neat little attraction to have, you know, because... Because like you have you have Nevada with Las Vegas and casinos, and then you have Arkansas with the state park that lets you pick diamonds. Right. So where Nevada is just taking your money, Arkansas is giving it back to you. Yeah. They limit fifteen hundred people per day. You buy tickets online. 
And let me see how much these babies go for. It's only ten dollars a ticket. It's only like eleven fifty for an adult and seven thirty for a kid. I have a feeling that you and Alyssa are gonna take a road trip pretty soon. I mean, there's a chance to find some diamonds. That's pretty neat to me. Yeah. So we do have an announcement to make. We Drum are roll. going to go to every other week and releasing episodes instead of one per week for the foreseeable future. We may go back to weekly. We do not know. Let's get to 2021 and see how things go. Yes, this was a decision that was long in the making because ever since COVID and not being able to meet how we used to, things got a little tougher as far as scheduling things out has been. And so we've we've lasted the majority of the year doing the regularly scheduled weekly program. Yes, I'm I'm quite proud of us. We we kept that up for quite a while. We did, we did. And you know, I always, always love to shout out our countries that listen to us. India, we got some Indians in the house. I love Indian food. I love the spicy. Anything with some basmati rice or some garlic naan. Oh my goodness. I really like that strawberry naan like little, like the most. Strawberry? I mean, it may not be called strawberry, but it has like some, it's very sweet. It has like this nice sweetness to it and it has like little red Little like red or pink little things in it. The naan? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I've had is it the one that have like the nuts in it too? I think I've had that before. It's like more desserty than eating with your food. Yes, it it, it tastes more like a after meal treat. Yes. So shout out to India. Sag Paneer, it's like my super favorite. Um, Canada, y'all have been hanging with us for the longest. We appreciate you. New Zealand, we got someone from Russia in the house. And also United Kingdom. We love all you guys. We appreciate you spending time with us. And, you know, the U.S., as always, that's our home base. So, of course, that's where we get the most support but we definitely love our international supporters as well so again everybody's welcome to follow us on instagram or twitter wstat underscore pod or join the we shouldn't talk about this facebook group we have lots of fun post lots of memes it's a good time all around. And with that being said, I'm Keith. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.